Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week on the show, we've got Whitman Kwok, the founder and CEO of Cav Helmets. Cav Helmets may yet to be a household name in the cycling industry, but you'll learn the team has a rich history in the cycling helmet market. Their innovative approach to manufacturing using 3D printing technology is a novel approach and creates a uniquely custom helmet for each rider. I'll let Whitman get into the ins and the outs of the technology, but I'm a big fan of the approach as additive technology just opens up a lot of possibilities for where material is laid in the helmet. If you're planning on attending this year's Sea Otter Classic in Monterey, California, the CAV team will be showing off their 3D printing technology there. They'll even be 3D printing some keychains, which I think will showcase how the process actually works. If you're not in the area or not attending Sea Otter, be sure to visit the CAV website as they're opening up orders for all. Before we jump into this week's show, I need to thank our sponsor. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients that it needs to survive. Our busy schedules, poor sleep, massive gravel rides, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a category-leading superfood product that brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each of us be at our best, they simply provide a better path to nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality, bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink. As many of you know, I've been an Athletic Greens subscriber for about the last five years, so I truly appreciate their support of the podcast. If you're interested in learning more, just visit athleticgreens.com slash the gravel ride. The team at Athletic Greens will throw in a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash the gravel ride to take control of your health and give AG1 a try today. With that said, let's dive right into my conversation with Whitman from Cav Helmets. Whitman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Really looking forward to our, our discussion. Yeah, me too. At the manufacturing and additive tech geek in me is really looking forward to this conversation. Definitely want to learn how Cav Helmets came about and what your journey is to creating this bike helmet. And more importantly, what the benefits are for riders in the gravel scene. So let's jump in and, and let's just, in your own words, let us know about Cav Helmets, how it started and what the vision is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot to unpack even in that that simple question. I think fundamentally the vision was around uh, providing a concierge service to athletes. I had always, as a competitive cyclist in college, 
tweaked my gear, adjusted everything from crank lengths to handlebar lengths and all, everything to get the most performance and also just make the bike an extension of, of myself. And I don't think anything has changed in the intervening years. And I think in, in all the sports that we talk to, whether it's uh, hockey players or cycling, the gear is a really important part of the athletic experience. And so for Cav, it was obvious to us that um, the helmet market is really large. It is a largely, at this point, a undifferentiated product where there isn't a dominant player per se. There isn't a Apple or a Tesla or a, a Peloton where people just all gravitate, gravitate to. And it's largely for the last 30 years, there's been a lot of tweaking and incremental improvements on injection molded foam helmets. And I think what we bring with Cav is this generational leap. Like, Tesla's done with electric cars to a whole new mode of thinking around making a helmet or anything for that matter, that's completely custom um, to the individual. And the moment you do, there's a whole bunch of benefits that we're able to realize. Um, there's the obvious ones around comfort that there's 8 billion sizes that we can provide one for every man, woman, child on the planet. And, but there's a huge number of performance benefits and uh, protection is always top of mind when you're talking about helmets. And the fact that we can tailor the protective characteristics to an individual and how they ride, how fast they're riding, their weight profiles, things like that, gives a massive uh, potential improvement in protection over just a standard kind of one or two or three size fits all. I'm fortunate I have a number of co-founders and colleagues that we founded the company together and I think we all had different experiences, but the same kind of echo and voice in the back of our head that there's just a lot better way um, to do this. And so uh, I'll do a quick shout out to there. And, and obviously there's um, a lot of different areas that we can talk through, but Mike Lowe is, is our VP of products and he was the VP of advanced concepts at Jiro Bell. He also worked closely with Riddell. He did early work with Lance Armstrong's time trial helmet and worked on all the iconic bike helmets since he's been just fantastic to learn from that whole industry on the helmet side. There's a lot of, uh, honestly, non-obvious <laughs> quirks and things in the industry and it's a very close knit industry. And so there's a lot of great people that we've been able to meet and, and work through, um, through Mike. And on the technology side, Dave Stoudemire, amazing technologist from Google, small company called Google and re relatively early employee there, um, working on search quality and YouTube, one of their, uh, two of their smaller, you know, products. And, and he brings this immense knowledge, not just in software, which ironically is where 70, 80% of our IP is, but also a really great understanding of hardware and kind of physics and mechanical um, engineering. And you really have to have that kind of polymath approach in order to build something um, like a superior helmet. So anyway, that's a long winded way of talking about some of the people we work with, uh, our early vision and some of the high level benefits and we can let you pick and choose your own adventure from there. Yeah, so I alluded a little bit to it in the intro, but just so we don't lose this concept right off the jump, because it's easy for the listener to think about this as a traditional helmet, but let's talk about how it's manufactured, because you didn't specifically mention that, and I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the process. Yeah, no, I, I do that a lot because I think we always think of it from the end, end consumer's perspective. What do they get and, and how we get there um, is really intriguing from an engineering perspective, and I, I often gloss over it. So yeah, we we blended a, a bunch of material sciences, additive manufacturing, and software in order to develop the helmets. And I'll speak a little bit more of the additive manufacturing side since you asked about it. But yes, each of these helmets is 3D printed here in Redwood City, California, 
for the individual. And so everything is made to order. That has huge implications to everything, not just manufacturing, but the whole customer that I was alluding to and being kind of concierge service of giving uh, people exactly what they want. And so when an order comes in, we're taking measurements and we dynamically generate actually all the engineering terms, all the CAD files, all the dimensions and everything for the helmet. And it's not the case that we're just taking three or six or even 12 like shells and then like carving something out. We are literally building the, their helmet from the inside out. So I think where's um, the, the current you know, concept of off the shelf is you get two or three sizes and you've got the shell that defines the helmet and then you're gonna force fit your head into that, use foam padding or you know, occipital lock things that just cinch your head loosely in this kind of bucket idea. And for us, you're actually taking the measurements. We dynamically create that. We define all the offsets that we need um, to generate and, and ensure the level of protection that we want for that rider. Then we send it um, through our own, what we call printer management software. And so we actually have a farm of these 3D printers. So you can imagine it being like analogous to like a data center, except instead of having all these servers slotted in these racks, we've got 3D printers um, slotted in them. And it, it basically just creates like all the different parts that you need for your helmet. And uh, we have a QA process throughout to measure and uh, make sure what we're printing is exactly meets the specs of what we want. And we have to build a lot of that in dynamically because each helmet is custom. And then we do a, a kind of final finishing process that, that's done by hand. So you get the best of both worlds of this precision 3D printed, but hand finished and you know lovingly made here in, in our shop in Redwood City. Yeah, I imagine for some of the listeners, this might be a mind-bending discussion because a lot of people haven't seen 3D printing in action. You know, one way to visualize it, and this may 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 not be a great way, but since I have a seven-year-old in the house, if you imagine sort of building from Legos and you're building from the ground up and you keep building successfully on top of each other, it's in my mind how 3D printing works, right? You've got the material that's in this printer and it's being laid out layer by layer. And this is based on the very customized measurements that you've received from the, the, the future owner of the helmet. So again, in the interest of helping to visualize, it's being built yeah. from the ground up around your individual head once you've placed the order. That, that's right. And the analogy I like to use is making a soft cone, right? Or you're going to the yogurt machine. And yeah, we basically, you can imagine we're taking our proprietary polymers and it's coming out of this very high-tech yogurt machine. But rather than having it dump like eight ounces of yogurt into the cup, we're precision layering at a fraction of a millimeter at a time. These very intricate engineered, what we call energy management system and your helmet. And, and so it's a little bit like growing the part on, on, on this bed. And we're, as you say, we're creating a slice at a time. That's a fraction of a millimeter and kind of building up. And each layer is being laid down by this very sophisticated yogurt machine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and at the end of the, yeah, exactly. You have a helmet that's not only a custom fit, but it's not solid. Like it's not like an injection molded part where you're just dumping a bunch of plastic into a mold or, or foam where you're like exploding or blowing up the foam into a mold. We're actually creating like this very um, complicated polygon and hex structure within the helmet, which is designed to crumple really efficiently to provide good protection, but also takes up the fraction of the weight um, because most of your helmet actually turns out to be air in this case. 
That's interesting. You, you hear the phrase fits like a glove, but this is even the next level of that. It's like fits like a glove that has been specifically designed for your personal hand. That, that's right. It, it would be like an Iron Man glove, right? Like it's one thing to have a fabric that you'd stretch over your hand, right? It's quite an honor to have this encased structure that still has the same sensation of uh, security, right? And being fit like a glove, but it's hard, right? On the outside to protect you. And so it, it is a next level sensation. So when I think about the helmet I have in the garage, I think about it's got some internal kind of frame and a dial that helps it fit. I understand from your earlier description, I can throw that piece out because I don't need that piece anymore because the helmet is built to order to the shape of my personal head. I then, if I think about the exterior of the helmet, I often have a hard plastic layer and then not knowing a ton about the interior, but it sounds like we're injecting molding, we're injecting foam into a cavity that kind of creates that. If you, if that's accurate and feel free to fill in any details there, but why don't you juxtapose what the outside and the inside of the cav helmet effectively, how that differs and how it changes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the cycling analogy would be it's almost like a, a monocoque structure, right? If you have a, a, a carbon fiber cycling frame where for all practical purposes, like all the tubing and lugs and everything are joined in a way where it just behaves as one monolithic, well-balanced machine in terms of... And in a traditional process, like you said, that in the higher-end helmets, you have uh, typically like a polycarbonate shell that's a couple of mils thick. And they injection mold some EPS foam into that um, of some type of density or multiple densities. And the nice thing, and, and so each of those things play a part and they're trying to compensate for different deficiencies um, in the foam. And so foam's not, it sticks to cement, right? And so you don't want that because it's going to cause bad rotational energies on impact. It's also not very durable and gets eaten up. So you have to then create this one millimeter shell to protect it. The, with all the venting that you put in, it's pretty common now to put like a, a plastic interior chassis to keep the helmet together on, on impact. And so I juxtapose that with additive manufacturing or 3D printing because what we're doing is integrating everything into one coherent design, right? And so when we're laying down each layer of plastic, we are actually integrating the shell with the crumple zone, with the chassis, so to speak, and by integrating it just like a well-made carbon fiber frame, we can reduce all the interfaces. And so the helmet's more compact. You don't have air gaps, so to speak. It's a lot lighter because we're only putting material where it's needed. It's like the old steel frames or, or aluminum frames where they're double butted or triple butted. Um, we can reinforce it kind of in the, in the right areas. And, and it gives us a lot of ability to fine tune each aspect of the helmet so that um, instead of saying having a universally uh, universal density of foam across the helmet, for different impact zones, and we learned a lot of this actually from our experience in hockey, we can tailor the impact behaviors of the based on location of the helmet as well. So it just gives us, just like carbon fiber and frames, it gives us a lot the analogies like the layup, right, of the carbon fiber and what carbon fibers you use and the resins. We have just a lot more control than just pumping a bunch of foam beads uh, into a mold. Yeah, that's interesting and maybe goes back to some earlier podcasts I've had in discussion around carbon fiber frames and, and just talking about how you layer something differently where it needs more protection, maybe under the bottom bracket, whereas you don't need to use those same layers elsewhere in the frame where you want to have a little bit more compliance. So I imagine given the team's experience in helmet design, 
it was really liberating to just freely think about how and where do we want to put material because really the sky is the limit, right? You can optimize around what's going to be best for, for impact protection, both on the yeah. hard impacts, like hard and fast, as well as slower impacts. I imagine you can, you're free to really design something that performs well across a couple of different factors. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Like, we have a lot more control in the general use case. And I think in the future, as we've done a little bit of this on hockey and we'll bring it into the bike market, what um, the, the individual characteristics actually matter a lot. Because at the end of the day, for a cycling helmet, we have 25, maybe 30 millimeters of offset we can work with. If we make it much larger than that, people balk at what they look like. There's certain brands that are known for safety, but they're also known for making your head look like a mushroom, right? We don't want that. We want people to love, frankly, wearing the helmets. We want to attract people who, frankly, don't wear helmets into the market. I'm going to do that. We need a thinner profile. And so the way to actually make a safer helmet is have information about what they're riding, right? A, a commuter ride with... I commute every day and you're going like 12, 13 miles an hour. That's a very different profile than a road racer or a gravel rider going downhill at 30, 40 miles an hour. There, that, that's a factor of three <laughs> difference in velocity. And if you think about kinetic energy, the velocity is a square root, right? So that's like a, that's a nine, ten, almost an order of magnitude difference in impact profile. So there is gain in exactly what we just talked about, but there's an even bigger gain because we're, we know the athlete and we have that relationship like moving forward, knowing that they're a commuter or they're a downhill racer and their weight, their mass makes a big difference too. Um, a kid who weighs 100 pounds, it's just going to be way different than someone who's 220. Again, you have a 2X factor there that isn't something that's accommodated for in the industry where it's one size fits all. Right. Now, the business has been selling helmets for over a year and a half, primarily in yeah. hockey and most recently in bike. Do you want to talk about why hockey was the entry point and maybe some of the things you've learned across the customers you've been serving in that space? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there were, there are a couple of factors that came in place. So one was, frankly, what, what could get us to market the quickest? We just wanted to provide value um, to people as quickly as possible. A second, where was, where was the biggest need? And between those two, and there was, there was a little bit of a, a personal uh, reason as well. But the first two were clearly the, the overriding. From a technical perspective, it turns out making a hockey helmet is just easier than making a bike helmet. One of the, the characteristic reasons is just weight is not quite as big of a factor in the hockey market. And so we wanted to basically use the hockey market as our Tesla Roadster, right? Knowing it's a limited market, it's smaller, but people are willing to pay for the equipment. They're willing to pay the premium and, and we could launch quicker. The second piece of why they pay a premium is that, as you can imagine, the concussion rate per activity hour in hockey is almost parallel or, or equal to, and meaning quite high. Whereas in cycling, it's somewhat incidental, right? If you get in a crash and, and get in a concussion. In hockey, three, five, 10 times a game, you're taking impacts to the head and getting pinned against the board and falling on the ice. And so we thought that the market would benefit significantly from our protective technologies in that space. And the third reason, which just made me very cognizant of it was uh, my son plays hockey. And when we started the company, his team had six concussions on it and they were only 12 years old at, at the time. And there was just an outcry, I think, with the parents and all the clubs that I talked to did not feel like there was enough being done. And the equipment manufacturers in hockey 
are, are generally about two to three generations um, behind any of the other helmet markets as, as well. So the need was greater, the, the products were even further inferior, and, and we thought we could help people sooner in that market than any other market. You talked about how as a company and the way you're producing the helmets that you can evolve with the market and your understanding within the hockey market, since you've been there the longest, are you doing things differently for a child size helmet versus the NHL players that you work with? Yeah. Yes. The size of fit, and we've actually made uh, modifications to, actually I would draw the analogy that it's the case that a surprisingly large number of the benefits for either of those extremes helps. And so the analogy I'll use is, you know, in the, late 90s, early 2000s, car manufacturers were realizing like women had difficulty like getting their groceries in the trunk. And because the trunk actually came all the way up to the top of the back. And now if you open the trunk of a car, it, it, the, the trunk dips down past the lights, right down to the bumper, there's like this carve out. And so you don't have to lift your groceries like over a wall, so to speak, you can just slide it in. Watching women buy groceries at the time was like a motivating factor for that. But we found that obviously that benefited everyone. Like I don't, I'm lazy. I don't want to lift the groceries if I don't have to. And so I'll give a kind of an example of that, which is kids wear glasses a lot. And so we ended up putting in little cutouts for people who wear glasses so that it actually just slides in. So a hockey helmet actually comes down further than a bike helmet. And traditionally, there are pads that go up against your temple. And so you can imagine if you wear glasses, you're literally shoving these glasses into these temples and the, the pads are forcing your, the sidearms of your glasses into your temples for an hour and a half, you know, while you play hockey, a really uncomfortable situation. And we did that and that ended up benefiting a bunch of adults, refs and things that um, it turns out like the ice uh, rinks are really dry. So like wearing contacts is not always actually comfortable. So and, and vice versa, like there's been a bunch of benefits because obviously at the, the professional levels, the impacts are taking, it's just an extreme example and, and it really drives some of the protective technologies and, and even if they you know the squirts and mites don't necessarily have the same level of impact there's still a, a deeper understanding i think of the types of checking that goes on that informed our products for the, the kids gotcha obviously given your pedigree as a cyclist and your co-founders coming to the bike market was something that you were eager to do can you talk about the introduction of, of the first bike helmet and what the goals were there and and how for the listener, they should think about whether a CAV helmet is right for them. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the engineering side of me and product matter want to be very specific about the goals. Oh, we want to hit this weight target and this usability. But what we ended up doing is taking a step back and, and asking like conceptually, what do we want to, what's our mission, right? A reminder, what's our mission of the company? Um, is build the best protective gear. Um, and as a very important corollary to that, the best gear is no use if no one wants to wear it. So it's gotta just look and feel fantastic. And when we're doing these new technologies, I think it was important for us to kind of blue sky it and not bound ourselves by certain things. So our goal is just make the best helmet possible. And this is an all, all road category, right? So with a focus really on um, gravel and road cyclists, but with the knowledge of knowing that a lot of um, cross-country mountain bikers use road helmets and a lot of commuters, you know, would ultimately use it. But if we look at personas and interviewing people, we focused on the road and gravel side of things. And then from there, we really just built um, around it. And I think honestly, I'm, I'm glad we've done it that way because we found a lot of surprising things that I think if we constrained ourselves early on, we would not have done. One of them being, for example, our interior fit pad system 
is just radically different from a traditional fabric fit pad. And it would not have come if, if we said, yeah, you just want sweat management, whatever, wickway moisture at, at this level or, or thermal capabilities. But anyway, I, I'm happy to go into the details of that. But what we ended up coming out with, I think, is we focused on fit and the protective qualities. What we ended up with was the ability to make something that as least as aerodynamic as um, other helmets out there is significantly cooler riding and has all the protective qualities. And again, has some of these comfort features built in uh, on the inside that again, we didn't necessarily envision, but the advantage of, of having a new prototype every week that we're all riding is you tend to iterate quite quickly through. And I think we're on version 32 right now and 33 is like on the pre printing press going quick. Yeah, I think that's one of those really cool things about doing both additive manufacturing and, and domestic manufacturing is that you can continue tweaking the product to optimize it based on consumer feedback, which is really powerful. Yeah, no, that's right. We we have the benefit now that we're far enough along and we're starting to include like a larger and larger swath of people into the, the kind of the tech. And so we had our Kickstarter about a month ago and we had a 20 plus like early adopters sign up through that. And we're, we're shipping out, shipping helmets out to them and looking forward to getting the next wave of feedback and, and just improving in, in real time before we, we ship out our, our production ones at the end of the year. Yeah. So the, the process of ordering is a little bit different than traditionally. You might just know your size, small, medium, or large and put an order in or go to your local bicycle retailer. For the CAV helmets, you're sending out a kind of measurement fit kit and actually working at a concierge level with the purchaser, right? Yeah, that's right. We the, the fit process has been really interesting for us. I think we're on our third like version of, of the process, but fundamentally, um, you sign up, we send you this fit kit, and it, it's a caliper and a tape measure, and it allows us we take six points off of your head, and with those six points, we actually um, map it to uh, a database of 3,000 head scans that we've uh, accumulated, and basically a little bit of like machine learning type of thing where we're then extrapolating from those six other aspects of your head in terms of the, the curvature and more details than maybe those six points would initially seem to, to provide. And we then send out basically what we call like a fit cap and this fun looking little cap that we 3D print and uh, you can just literally stick it on and wear it around the house. And it's like getting a fine suit where you get your initial measurement, you, you put on the suit, and then you use just some minor tweaks. Oh, you know, I want the armhole just a little bit bigger. Or for me personally, like I like it a little more snug around the waist. And so that, that fit cap gives us some of the subjective feedback that, that individuals tend to have in terms of how they like their helmet to fit. And then from there, yeah, we generate the, the helmet for them and, and send it to them and arrive straight at their doorstep conveniently. And, and then they can enjoy it. And we've actually found quite a few hockey players, um, surprisingly, have gotten multiple helmets because they liked it so much. And it's not a common thing actually in hockey to do that, but they've got like different colors and versions of the helmet. Interesting. Interesting. And then the, yeah. the sort of manufacturing geek in me has to ask, so the, each helmet presumably comes out of one machine and is built in one single process. Is that right? So we actually do them in parallel. So we break up the helmet into sub-segments and that allows us to print individual pieces. It also turns out it gives us some additional engineering design flexibility that you don't get when you print them all as a monolithic structure. And then we basically bond them together again, 
carbon fiber resin type of analogy holds true here. There's a little bit of attachment mechanism and then we adhere everything together and the, effectively the joints end up being stronger than the subcomponents. And, and then, yeah, and then we attach on the straps and, and do some final QA checks and literally sign off on the box and, and then send it on its way. Nice. One of the sort of visual elements that you'll see for the listener when they go over to the website, which I can include in the show notes, is there's a unique honeycomb look across the sort of front and middle of the helmet. Is there a sort of design rationale behind the honeycomb? Yeah, it is. It's, it's in engineering circles, it's, it's known as one of the most efficient energy absorbing structures. It crumples really well, which is what you want, obviously, in something like that. And even better than foam, uh, because in foam, what you tend to have is what's called a densification phase, where after the foam, if you've got, let's just say, 20 millimeters of foam or uh, 20 millimeters of foam, once you start getting past about a third, and if you've ever been in an accident and looked at your helmet, you'll see this, it'll crack and the foam doesn't compress any further. And so you can think of it like suspension on your mountain bike or your gravel bike, if you have suspension on it. It's all about the travel, right? At the end of the day, to absorb the impact, you want the most travel without bottoming out. So when you hit a bump, you want to utilize whatever the 30, 45 millimeters of travel that you got. And if you use the full 45 millimeters, you will have had the best ride that you could possibly have had for that circumstance. If you bottom out, obviously not good, particularly we're talking about your head. And if you only do 10, 10 millimeters of that travel, then you're not fully utilizing your equipment. And so foam has that issue where once it densifies, at some point it doesn't compress any further. And so you tend to only get a fraction of um, that travel. The nice thing about the hex is that you get nearly the full travel. So the full offset of the helmet can be used to compress and, and protect you. It also turns out to be quite and has this other really important ancillary benefit, which is you may not necessarily always be able to see it when someone's riding, but the honeycomb structure extends on the interior as well, which means you have an open face structure on your head. And so heat can dissipate really easily away from your head, as opposed to foam, which is obviously known for beer coolers and, and other things. It has insulating properties that trap heat in. So we actually had early versions of the helmet that didn't even have venting on it. And the helmet was actually quite cool. I wouldn't say it's the coolest, but it was comparable to the other eight helmets I have sitting in my <laughs> shed that I use for testing purposes. And then in the moment we opened it up and added, you know, the actual venting, like it's a game changer, um, total game, particularly these last like week or two where we've had some hundred, hundred degree days like you, you really feel um, the difference. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. The, the sort of, follower of me on Instagram might've seen me don one of these helmets a few months back when we were able to meet face to face. It is really, you can definitely feel the weight difference. It's marginal, but it's absolutely there. And our conversation around crumple zones and that idea of like protection travel in a helmet is super fascinating via the honeycomb design. For those listeners, and I may fall in this camp, what's the guidance by the industry in terms of how frequently you should replace a helmet? You know what? I do think that varies. The most common I hear is somewhere in the range of three to five years. I think the challenge though is it's like how often you need to change your bike. It varies so much by your circumstances, meaning um, if you're like me and somewhat klutzy and you're pulling your bike out and you're dropping your helmet in the process or my helmet, I don't know how many times my helmet has fallen off my handlebars. Every time it's fallen, like you can imagine 
that impact just compresses the foam just a little bit, right, in that one area. And honestly, one or two times, it isn't going to be, you know, the be all end all. For me, it's a little unsettling to not know. It's not like my toothbrush that has a wear indicator that says, okay, time to change those bristles. And so the nice thing with the 3D printing, the polymers that we're using to design the helmet is that there's a step function aspect of it. Like we've designed it so that if you're dropping it casually, it doesn't activate any of that travel. Like it, it stays rigid and it's going to maintain you know, that performance indefinitely. And so you, you don't really have to worry about it. We offer a uh, five-year warranty on, on our helmets and, and because we're, we're confident around that, which I think is an industry leading whatever warranty. So I think, again, I think that the general wisdom is three to five years, but I think it varies really significantly and, it, and I think it's tough to provide a that, that makes universal sense. statement. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's a lot of us maybe who have been fortunate to to not have crashed and you don't see those obvious bits of damage to your helmet. But I, I'm definitely one of those who, whenever I have a conversation about helmets and helmet technology, I think to myself, gosh, almost everything in my garage is a is probably pretty long in the tooth in terms of when I should be considering making a replacement. Yeah, that's right. It's it's one of those pieces of equipment that's easy to ignore, right? Because it's not like your bike bottom bracket squeaking, your rim brakes rubbing. It's not going to do that and tell you, right, that it needs maintenance or help. Yet, obviously, it protects the most important your bo- part of your body. And so it's, it is pretty critical to have at least inspect it and have some regular interval that you swap it out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good reminder to everybody. And Whitman, I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast and talking us through this technology. I think the uh, the tech geek in all of us can really appreciate from listening to you how different the 3D printing technology enables you to think as a helmet manufacturer. And it's very comforting to know that you've got smart people around you, including yourself and veterans of the industry who have just been thinking about this helmet from the ground up and how to make the best possible experience for consumers. So I know you, I'll send people over to the website where they can find more information about the helmet. Are these available for new orders at this point? We will be uh, taking new orders in about two or three weeks. I'm not sure when this is airing. Um, we wanted to make sure that all the early backers on our Kickstarter were well taken care of. And so we've, we're in a good shape there and we'll begin opening up orders. We'll be at the Sea Otter Classic. So for anyone who's there, it'd be great. Drop by our, our booth and look out for us. You can see that the helmets firsthand and we'll be definitely taking orders uh, at that point as well. Amazing. Yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen a couple of people in my Instagram feed who were clearly some of your earliest supporters who've gotten their helmets already. So that's exciting to see. So once again, Whitman, thanks a ton for this overview. I really appreciated it. And I hope everybody listening got a lot out of this conversation. Yeah, thanks, thanks again, Craig. I'm always happy uh, to, to talk helmets or, or anything related to, to cycling. So thanks for having me on board. So that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride podcast. Thank you very much to Whitman and the Cav Helmets team for joining us and talking all about 3D printing helmets. I think it was a fascinating discussion. Definitely check out their website. They're over at cavsports.com to see a little bit of behind the scenes about the process, the guarantees around the helmet and just what a custom-fitted helmet could do for your cycling enjoyment. As always, if you're interested in giving us feedback, I encourage you to join us over at The Ridership. 
just visit www.theridership.com. That is our free global cycling community for gravel and adventure cyclists to talk about the products and experiences and trails and events we all love. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, ratings and reviews are hugely helpful in the podcast game. I read everything that you put out there and appreciate it very much. If you're able to financially support the show, simply visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. I've put a number of options out there from one-time support as well as a monthly subscription that simply helps underwrite this broadcast. So that's going to do it for us. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Mm -hmm.